All right, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, the title of the message, we're taking a break from the Chosen in Christ series. Uh, the last message we did in that series was part 37. We dealt with the myth of common grace. And we're going to uh, be talking about that the title today is He Remains Faithful. That's out of verse 13. We're going to start reading in verse 7. And we're going to read through, um, starting at verse 7, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 7. Here, uh, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, young Timothy. He's going to be a, a preacher. So he's giving him exhortation, advice, counsel about what he's supposed to do. Consider what I say, and the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. He's in jail. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with Christ, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting or perverting of the hearers. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as does a canker. One of the modern versions says, as game green, flesh destroying. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrew the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knows them that are his, and let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. In uh, every generation, the world, we know, persecutes God's people. They mock the truth of the promises of God. They try to get God's sheep to doubt God, just like the serpent did in the garden. They chide the idea of him being creator. We know that in culture through the Darwin's theory of evolution and so on. They chide us about counting on this God who is the God of providence, who not only created, he provided, but he provides all the means, and he actually controls, sovereignly controls everything. And people, of course, don't like that because it goes against what they want to do. They don't want to be told what to do. 
They don't want to have a God rule over them. So they rebel against his sovereignty and they, they try to make God's sheep be ashamed with objections like this. What kind of God is it that would allow so much suffering in the world? That's a big one, you know. So as you hear that objection, it's probably one of the most famous. Be prepared not to soften God's sovereignty, but like Paul, double down on it and explain he's absolute sovereign in, in all things without exception. And don't be afraid or ashamed of that. But most of all, the world persecutes God's people because they absolutely despise the gospel of his free and sovereign grace. They despise it. They hate the God of it. They hate the message. And they hate God's people who propagate it and defend it. And their self-righteous hatred lashes out at Christ. And they persecute those who confess Christ as their only hope. I want to ask you to turn to some Scripture, we're going to be coming back there to 2 Timothy, but 2 Peter, we, we looked at this not too long ago, chapter 3, speaking of mocking, the world mocks and scoffs. And uh, Peter, you know, kind of goes back and he's talking about the second coming of Christ. And he says, you know, it's, it's no different. That's what they did to Noah when impending doom was promised by God's threat. Verse 3, 2 Peter 3, 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking in their own lusts. This is not just a guess by Peter. This was, this was a form of prophecy. Inspired word of God. Verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And they probably added to it, you bunch of dummies. You know, that's the idea. They're scoffing. So you guys are crazy. Believing in some words that were through the mouth of some guy concerning this invisible God you can't see. Right? That's that's what we get. Go to second. There's a lot there. And, and there's a lot of stuff I have to cover today. So I have to kind of speed through some things. Go to second Thessalonians chapter one. Start reading in verse six. The context is talking about persecution of God's people. It's related to the text we just read in 2 Peter. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. These are, these are unbelievers that are troubling God's sheep. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So you see, the cut that splits the people is faith and unbelief. Those that are unbelief, they hate God, they hate God's people, they hate God's message, and they can do nothing but resist it, mock it, scoff at it, scoff at God's people, scoff at God's Christ. It's a promise. It's going to happen. 
So in this letter that Paul's writing Timothy, he's uh, giving him instruction and encouragement in the gospel ministry. Paul, having suffered already tremendous persecution, he's now in prison. He ran into problems with both you know, governmental rulers and religious rulers, just as Christ did. Christ did the same thing. This is another thing that was said about Paul, and you don't have to turn there. This is Acts 24.5. We have found this man a pestilent fellow. These are the people that hated Paul. A pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader in the sect of the Nazarenes. That's a pretty good accusation against Paul the Apostle, a pretty hard one that expresses what they really think of him. So a note in our text that God's gospel became Paul's gospel by the fact that Paul believed it, preached it, and now he's in prison for it. Notice what it says in our text in uh, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. My gospel. So we can say the same thing about it. You know, Paul preached it. Really, everybody should preach it. Not necessarily in the context of a local church, you know, that men that are capable of preaching can preach and should preach. But in a, in a church setting, there's the instruction of, of Paul and other writers that women are to not teach men. But whoever has a gospel and believes a gospel, they should be able to call it their gospel because they believe it, they love it, they defend it, and they get persecuted for it. So the, really, the more you're involved with it, the more right you have to call it yours. So what if uh, there is a, this thing some people call secret Christian? And, um, you know, you would think, okay, well, let's get all the detectives in the world and let's see if we can find evidence that this person even believes the gospel, let alone have the right to call it my gospel. And they, they don't ever fellowship with any of God's people. They don't come to church. They don't express it publicly. But it's some kind of a secret thing. Scripture doesn't really talk about people like that. You don't really see that. So Paul put the gospel on. He, he wore it, in other words. He said in uh, Romans 1.16, he's not ashamed of it. Because it's the power of God and the salvation. Of his own salvation. And everybody that he preached to that believed it. For Paul, it threatened the state because God is over the state. You know, if the state says, you know, we're... If the state is atheistic, then really look, people look to the state as their god. We have still have government functions like that in the world today. But it threatened the state, but it especially threatened the Jews' religion of law righteousness. That's the ones that really got stirred up. And we see those throughout the whole, the whole of Scripture. So today it's no different. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get people in this other church I've been preaching at, you know, as I relate something like Romans 10, 1 through 4. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel that they might be saved, right? So I explained that, and we all know this is talking about the Jews' religion. For the most part, the majority of them believed in Judaism, practicing the Old Covenant, doing the law of righteousness. So my task in that text was to bring this to the minds of the people that, 
that can be applied today, but in a different theological setting. Just because it's not the Decalogue or any other form of law, it can be related today in reference to conditions. Anything that somebody would do to go about to establish a righteousness of their own. Anything. Which would be a conditional salvation. Salvation conditioned on the sinner. What's that imply? The sinner gets glory. Christ is not the difference maker. The sinner's a difference maker. On and on and on. So we apply that today that way. And we're even talking about, of course, sovereign grace Calvinistic reform people. Because I think, I know my own experience, the more and more and more of them I meet, and I meet a lot, whether it be in person or through social media, the more and more I meet, the more that I see that this is a problem, conditionalism. I mean, I can spit out a lot of, a lot of things, a lot of doctrines and things, talk a lot of theology, throw around the same phrases, but they got to sneak them conditions in. So here it talks about Paul said he was in prison and accused of being an evildoer. So you would imagine, since Paul is preaching sovereign grace up against, which is the offensive cross, up against a law righteousness, he was cutting into the whole foundation and tradition of the Jews' religion, and they would call him an antinomian. Right? And Paul said that if you preach grace, you're going to get that accusation. As he went down Romans 5 and laid out that through the inspiration of the Spirit, that beautiful in Adam, in Christ, this contrast, he talked about grace reigning through righteousness, the righteousness of Christ imputed. And then he anticipates the objection. Should we sin that grace may abound? That's coming from these kind of people. From the minds of the self-righteous. They always accuse God's people when they preach pure, sovereign grace. So you can just go out and do whatever you want. Look at verse 10. 2 Timothy 2.10. In other words, that was the cry. I, I, I got dramatic there. That was the re-dramatization of the legalist. That's what the legalist does and says. Verse 10. Therefore... Notice this, I endure all things for the elect's sakes. So the whole body of the elect, we know the prayer in John 17, where he was praying for the disciples. And then later on in the prayer, he says, I don't just pray for them. I pray for the ones that will believe from their word, which is us. Paul here, I think, is dealing with that part of that truth of that prayer. He was a, uh, an apostle that came later, not of those original 11. So he's enduring all things for the elect's sake. I mean, he laid down through the inspiration of the Spirit 13 books. Some say maybe even Hebrews, but 13 books we know for sure. So Paul, he wasn't playing games. He knew what his priority was. And he mentions here why he did it. That they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So what Paul's saying here is, is saying, look, I'm going to totally destroy this idea of fatalism and hyper-Calvinism. 
This is, of course, before John Calvin, but this is the same accusation. Non-evangelistic, non-missionary, anti-preaching. Paul destroys it right here. He says this has to happen for the rest of the people to be able to be brought in. He knew that. He spent time with Christ in the desert personally for a couple of years. Paul is not only an example of sacrificial love for God and the elect to Timothy, but also for us. You know, these books that are written are for us to learn from. We, Of course, we have to know the context, this, that, and the other. But we should look at this and not just, I mean, we shouldn't just, you know, read through the scripture and say, okay, I'm going to look for the goodies. I'm going to extract the doctrine of theology and, and my brain is grown. Take things in their context. Look at what this guy, Paul, went through and his sacrifice. And, you know, kind of relate that to you. And when you do, you'll see that we're awful soft. That's what will happen. <laughs> but again, don't just, like, go grab the good stuff and forget about the rest. Read, read the whole thing and have an appreciation for Paul, God's grace in Paul. Verse 11, it's a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we also shall live with him. Okay, what I wanted you to notice, I'm going to say this again when we get down further to remind you, there's the next few lines, there's the first part's positive and the last part's negative. And we'll, I'll show you the dividing line here in a minute. You don't have to turn there, but we're all familiar with this verse. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, and yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here we have our union as Christ died as a representative. We were in him as he was our representative. We were crucified with him. When he died, we died. When, when Adam ate, we ate. So get out of that. When Christ died, we died. So we were placed in him in his death. We were The old man was crucified with him. The old man's dead. God killed him when he killed Christ. And what results from that? Life. If we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. So, And also connected with that, we are, we are not just crucified with him or died with him. We're dead to the world. We're dead to the world's philosophy the way that they think. We have a philosophy because we think. We're encouraged to think. Now, you might not get that at other churches. I know they'll probably, a lot of other churches, they'll, they won't let you think. The preacher will say, don't think, I'll tell you what to think. And he'll say stupid stuff. He'll promote ignorance as humility. He'll stunt your growth. In most of these churches, the preachers are false prophets, but philosophy is it's all about Christ it's all about grace it's not about us so we're dead and crucified to the world's philosophy the world's goals it's kind of hard as you grow into grace and knowledge of trying to determine what you should and shouldn't do as far as focus I mean you can't get carried away certain things I mean some people are, are ate up with just making money some people are ate up with making face, you know what I mean, like gaining power or fame or influence. Some people, they talk about, I mean, you see it all the time on social media, you know, like follow your dreams, you know. 
It's a good question. What's your dream? We're crucified and dead to the world's mainly religion. We've been given repentance of our former idolatry, our own righteousness that we had before. We flushed it. And so we're, we have the mind of Christ, and so we shall also live with him. The just shall live by faith. So we have justification, which is legal life. We're declared that we have a life in Christ, and we're fixed in him because of his righteousness. We're justified. We have sanctification, spiritual life. We've been set apart by the Spirit of God. The Spirit indwells. The Spirit regenerates. The Spirit works. So we're set apart. We have spiritual life. We can now... Seek God. We can now understand the things of God because a natural man before did not. And we will have glorified life. We will, after our resurrection in our eternal state, we will have life forever in the presence of God without sin. So there's all types of facets of life that we have in him. Look at verse 12, the first part. If we suffer... We shall also reign with him. Now, I just want to say, we're going to go to Philippians 1. You can turn if you like. There are different facets or levels of suffering, no doubt, in different times and histories and different cultures, depending on what country you're in, what religion in the area is dominant. I mean, some other religions, they will kill you. And historically, that has happened. Mass Amounts of people have been slaughtered for their faith. I know today, sometimes on the news, you'll hear about in a certain country that a certain group is killing Christians. Don't be so quick to, to jump on that and say, oh, they're killing people that believe in free and sovereign grace. <laughs> no, most of the time it's some, they don't believe the gospel. Not saying in every case, I'm not saying that, but the vast majority of when they call people Christian, it, it's, it's nowhere near what the scripture explains concerning the gospel. I saw some guy that seemed to be pretty straight on the gospel from Nigeria even say that himself. He said, don't believe it. He said, they're not killing Christians over here. They're killing people in false religion. They're calling them Christians. Philippians 1.28. We're in the context of suffering in our text back in 2 Timothy. Notice this now. This is... Uh, especially the next verse that we're going to read after this. I don't think people really, really, you can read over this fast and, and miss it. Verse 28, and in nothing terrified of your adversaries. And again, this is in context of uh, persecution, which is to them an evident token of their perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. So this persecution, what it does is it makes a distinction of who is who. The persecutors are shown to be wicked, evil, unrighteous unbelievers. And those being persecuted are persecuted for the true gospel. And that shows that they are the ones that are standing for Christ, confessing Christ, defending Christ. And that's why they're being persecuted. Now look here at verse 29. I don't know. I, I was familiar with this verse, you know, some of it. But the more you look into it, it the more it kind of expands. You know, I've used this for faith is a gift verse. But notice the first part. For it is given unto you in the behalf of Christ. So it's a gift. Now we know it's going to talk about faith. Because it says not only or not merely or not just to believe on him. 
it is, that is, and that's great, but also to suffer for his sake. That's a gift from God, to suffer for his sake. And if you keep it contextually, the verse above it shows that this is proof of your salvation. If you suffer concerning being persecuted for the gospel in Christ, it shows that you are one of God's people. I worked with a guy years ago, and we're in a manufacturing shop with a bunch of blue-collar workers who, you know, talk like sailors. And they've got music blaring in the shop, country and rock and roll. And this guy that was Catholic self-righteously would make a big deal about it. And he, it happened so many times, and they had to pull him in the office like, stop bugging people. So they would go and say, hey, can you turn it down a little bit because, you know, this guy's over here. And um, he eventually got fired for it. It just kept bubbling up in him that this music is wicked and evil. And, you know, he would think he was doing God a favor by squelching the, the music. And no doubt when he got fired, he probably went and told his priest, hey, I, I lost my job. I really sacrificed. And they probably pat him on the head, encouraged him in his, in his religion. Go to Romans uh, 8. Romans 8 and verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. It's referring to an inheritance. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him. That's that gift that it was talking about that he gives us like he gives us faith. That we, or so that we, may be also glorified together. Looks like it's going to happen here. To, to some extent. To some extent. And we know the extent varies from age to age and person to person. There's no need comparing notes and saying, uh, you didn't suffer like so-and-so, I don't think you're going to heaven. You know, that, that's ridiculous. That's just bring it back into conditional salvation. So it's, it's obvious that in American religious culture, there's this idea of suffering. It's, it's pretty much non-existent because there are laws in place to protect the offense of the cross, right? And, and just the offense of the cross is, is lost and buried. You know, we're the ones that have to bring it up. So when we're preaching the offense of the cross, constitutionally, they're not allowed killing us. But we're the only ones going to bring up the offense of the cross because it's lost and buried. So that is our task to recover, so to speak, to recover the gospel, to bring it out because nobody else is. They're just bringing out religion. So when this happens, of course, you know, distinctions are made. The offense of the cross all of a sudden has a spotlight. Then suffering or Persecution will follow to some degree. Isn't that what Paul said in uh, Galatians? He said, you know what? If I, if I let these Judaizers continue to do their circumcision, their holy days, and their, their, their diets, if I continue to let that happen, the persecution would cease because the offense ceased. But no, the offense is in place. The persecution continues. There Paul just beautifully lays it out. There's a seminar that churches ought to have. How do you adjust persecution? <coughs> Through the offense of the cross.
compromise on that, you get less persecution. Simple as that. Look at the second part. Here is where it starts getting negative. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So in other words, if we don't confess him, and what does that word confess mean? Say the same word about, agree with, say amen to. If we don't confess him, then we can't really say we're his. So here's the, here's the question. Is this just merely in our own mind in secret? Could uh, someone deny him by not identifying with Christ among God's people? His church, in other words? What if, um, you know, and even baptism, you know, if uh, you, what a baptism is to identify with Christ and his church. So you're making that break from false religion and you're expressing openly that I'm dead to the world's false religion and this is God's church that believes the truth and we're in fellowship in the truth. Could someone deny him by compromising the gospel or being ashamed of it? That's probably the biggest one right there. I mean, it can throw around language that we do. You can even get a tattoo that says sovereign grace on your arm, right? On one side, you can put gospel defense on the other. It's a good conversation starter, but then after you start that conversation, you better not compromise. If you put sovereign grace out front where they can see it, are you going to raise the inside of your arm where it's tender, where it really hurts to get a tattoo, and say, but Arminianism is legitimate too? Not really show it that much, but when you're in a bind, you can show that one. Get out of trouble. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Look, as, as God's people, we should know, we should be trained, and if we're not trained, shame on God's preachers. We should be trained that we cannot tolerate false gospels. We cannot fellowship with those that tolerate false gospels. Period. I'm not going to let somebody up here, and neither are you, that stands behind here that says Arminianism is a legitimate gospel because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not going to happen. You have to wait until I'm dead. But I would hope that we've been trained in this, that this is not going to happen. It's I'm scared of people that allow that. Go to Matthew. We'll show some of this here. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32. Matthew 10, 32. Remember, if, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Whosoever, verse 32, therefore shall confess me before men, say the same about me before men, I will also Confess them before my Father, which is in heaven. Okay, so as we are preaching Christ, loving Christ, defending Christ, propagating the truth of Christ, we say there's only one true Christ. Here he is. It's in the context of him accomplishing redemption through an effectual way, uh, sufficient in and of itself. It is a satisfactory work. It's a, an effectual propitiation for his people. And... If, if anybody didn't understand what I said, what I'm saying is universal atonement is of the devil. <laughs> OK, 
Okay, and you say it that clear. Universal atonement, Christ dying for all and the majority of those going to hell, that's satanic. Are you, are you ashamed of saying that? I used to believe it. That's what I'm ashamed of. I came away from it. So those that would embrace that satanic and tolerate that satanic gospel, we should have no fellowship with them. That is a way of denying him. Let's keep going. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him I also will deny before my Father which is in heaven. Hey, look, this is, this is more than just temporarily moving tables and then repenting from it after somebody gets in your face and straightens you out, like Paul did Peter. This is not just moving tables. This is saying, I believe you're my brother in Christ. I know the implications. I don't agree with what you're saying about the implications. I embrace you as brother because what are the implications? You believe the same Christ, you believe the same gospel, you've got the same father. The Armenian gospel is the opposite of the truth. It's a false Christ. It's a false father. That Christ is the devil. I hate that Christ. I used to be under the bondage of that false Christ. I, I don't know. Is that clear? I think it might be. So we can't, we can't dabble with people that are tolerating this. We have to make a clean break. I don't want to be anywhere near this denying Christ thing. Nowhere near. Uh, verse 34. Christ doubling down. You know, kind of reminds me of what Paul did in Romans 9. He just keeps hitting on the same thing. He's not backing off. He keeps going. Think not that in verse 34. Think not that I came to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. So what's the world do? The world says, you know what? You're awful hateful. And you saying that you can't tolerate this is hateful. And we know it's the most loving thing we can do. You've got to do it in a loving, compassionate way, of course, but not with the attitude. But we are doing, when we do this and make these distinctions, and like we spoke a few messages ago, God loves himself being made distinct by his people. He does it. Baal and Nebo, they're these dumb god, dumb idols. You've got to pick them up, set them up. They can't hear. You've got you to help them out. And he says, it's not me. I'm God. There's none else. There's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. The things that have not yet come to pass. I'll do all my pleasure. Nobody can stop me. He's faithful to himself. He won't allow his people to embrace him like those idols. We may have done that in our unconverted unbelieving state but not anymore that's where there's no peace between you and unbelievers when those distinctions are made so he didn't come to send peace and I know I know people by nature uh, <laughs> hey I have to admit it I, I like to be liked you know even even apart from the gospel I, I want everybody to like me you know when somebody doesn't I need to kind of get in there and figure out why and kind of like fix that up clean that up just we have that by nature. We want to be accepted. We don't want to be pushed out. But we can't have that attitude in the ministry. We have to know where those boundaries are. And and, and what's so what what makes what I'm saying is church, the assembling of the saints, makes that important. Because that's all you got in this world that believes this gospel. It's a safe haven because here we are resting in Christ. Just a handful of people, and everybody else hates the gospel we love. So all the more reason 
as you see the day of Christ approaching to assemble together. Verse 35, I, for I'm come to set, look, he's doing this on purpose, set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This has not accidentally happened. This is Christ speaking in clarity. I'm doing this on purpose. This will happen. And he just gives examples here of some connections of people. You could add neighbor. You could add co-worker. You could add grandma, grandpa, son, daughter, any, any, any variance. And a man's foes or enemies shall be they within his own household. He that loves his father, and here, here's, I'm going to relate this to what I was saying. Verse 37, he that loves his father or mother, note, more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, bring this in the context of what I was just saying about what is the gospel, what is not the gospel, who is a believer and who's not a believer. So if you uh, are dealing with somebody in your household that you love and you care for and you might even die for, and the subject of, uh, of something comes up in a gospel context, and that other person that you know is not a believer is craving for you to call them a believer and to speak peace to them, call them a believer. And if you do, you are partaker in their evil deeds in legitimizing their false gospel, and you are denying Christ. Verse 38, And he that takes not up his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. So this is just talking about how that persecution matches your belief, and you roll with the gospel wherever you go, and you confess Christ, and you, you take up that, that message that you say you believe and love, and you follow the words of Christ. You hear his voice. And if not, you're not worthy of me, he says. Now, I'm not going to go into what this is not saying. Later on in the message, there's a kind of touch on that. Because I've heard people that just like turn that into something else. That's in my notes. It's right here. So This doesn't mean a lifelong goal to create constant maximum disturbance in other people's lives. In other words, being belligerent, showing no compassion, and being mean, that's not what this means. We communicate the gospel with love and compassion and patience in, in clarity. And after so long, what does the scripture It gives some ideas. A few different texts came to my mind. After so long and they don't hear it, what do we do? We shake the dust off our feet, move, we move along. And if you're in the same house, you can't move along, but you're done with the subject after a while. What else can it be if you would to keep going? After a while, there's a line where you're casting your pearls before swine. Go to, there's another verse here in Titus. Let's go there. It's related to this. Titus 3. And verse 9 says, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law. Yeah, good idea. They're not profitable. They're, and they're vain. They're a waste of time. Not saved by the law anyway. And not even secondary through the sanctification back door, keeping the law. Lifelong process of progressive keeping law. So quit talking about it. A man 
that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, what? Reject. Knowing that he that is such is perverted and sins being condemned of himself. You know, life's too short. You deal, you just, you give the gospel. And what I've done with people that where it's gotten heated, I'll say, look, uh, you got my, you got my website, you got my contact information. If you ever in the future want to talk about this, maybe you will. You don't know right now. I know you're mad, but I'm just telling you, I'm willing to answer any question you have, and I can do it without yelling and stomping and spitting, and, and leave it there. After you've given them the gospel several times and they're not believing it, but they're resistant and maybe getting kind of hostile, you say, all right, and you think of these texts. I'm not casting my pearls before swine, shaking the dust off, and um, looks like you're a heretic, so I'm separating. But yet, at the end, I'm saying, here's my offer. I'll if you want to talk about it, I'll talk about it. Ball's in your court. I've done that with a bunch of people before. Like Paul in uh, Galatians 1.7, he says, But some are troubling you and desiring to pervert the gospel of Christ. That's what this last text we read said in um, Titus there. Now, here's the getting to the meat of the matter. Verse 13, 2 Timothy 2.13, says, If we believe not, so here's the other part of the negative. Right? If we deny him, he'll also deny us. That's negative. So here's the other negative. If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. Now, some people might be hearing this interpretation this way for the very first time in their life because they're used to hearing something else. And over the years, I've heard this verse here downplayed to really tolerate apostasy. Notice the order of the listing, first the positive, and then last the negative. Go back up to verse 11. It's a faithful saying, for if we are dead with him, we shall all live with him. Positive. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Positive. Here's the negative. If we deny him, he will also deny us. You can't get anything positive out of that. You can't twist that to do something else. It's He will deny us if we deny him. And then here, if we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. So it's not that Paul went back to positive and said it's okay to not believe because no matter what happens, he's faithful to you in your not believing. It's not saying that. And that's what we're going to talk about most of the remainder of the time. So again, some have misread this as, as God putting a stamp of approval on unbelief. Here it says, uh, if we believe not, that's the King James, some other modern versions, uh, the ESV says, faithless. And the modern King James says, if we do not believe him. So, you know, I like that last one because it has to do with him, because it's coming out of his mouth. It's not just we believe something. We don't believe him. We don't believe what he's saying. Now, we should really understand why, uh, quote-unquote, easy believism would take this view that it's a tolerant view of apostasy. Easy believism where they would say that this is a positive statement. They, they could care less, really, about anything that happens after they come down the aisle and repeat their prayer and go on with their life. They got their ticket, so it doesn't matter. 
So we can understand why they would take that interpretation, that it's okay not to believe, and God's going to be faithful to you anyway, right? That's not what it's saying. We can also understand why the legalist would read something into this. I was alluding to this a second ago. And why they would say it's negative, and I, I'm saying it's negative, but why would they say it's negative? They would say it for a different reason, a wrong reason. It would be like a legal performance as a condition for final salvation. That's what they would consider unbelief if we didn't perform under those conditions and do good at it. According to what standard, I don't know. I mean, we know God's standard is absolute perfection, so I don't know where they go with that. So that is why when we describe perseverance, we're careful to ask perseverance in what? Go to Colossians 1. So our text says, if we believe not. That's the context of what is brought up. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. If we believe not, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So look here, verse 20. It's talking about the cross, what was accomplished there. And, and through him, Colossians 1.20, having made peace through the blood of his cross, unlike Dr. Stephen Lawson says the way that you, the terms of peace that you purchase is your total surrender of your life to him, investing all that you are into all that he is, it will cost you everything. Here, it cost him everything, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his blood. That's how peace is had. Through the blood of his cross, it pleased the Father to reconcile all things to himself through him, whether they be things on earth or things in heaven, and you, the believers at Colossae, you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you a certain way, holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. Legally and spiritually bulletproof, right? Safe and secure. Should have assurance. And then the Armenian comes along and says, oh, I got you now, sovereign grace guy. If, Lordship guys do this too. If you continue what? Here's the perseverance part. We ask the question. Perseverance, perseverance in what? If you continue in the faith. The faith is that message that describes the person and work of Christ as accomplished redemption. That's that faith that we are exhorted to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. That body of doctrine and theology that describes who he is. How that he is both just God and Savior. How that Christ established a righteousness. How that Christ was a propitiation. How that Christ was God. How that he fulfilled the law. All these things. That is the faith. If you continue in that, in that faith, by faith, that God gives you. Notice, grounded and settled. And what else? And you're not to be moved away from it. From what? The hope of, again, the gospel, the faith. It doesn't say the, the garbage that John Piper's been saying and some of those other lordship guys that you have to meet some uh, certain standard of performance throughout the years and progressively 
do well so that you can make sure that in the final end, you've produced some kind of holiness without which you can't see the Lord. Have you done enough? Because your sanctification is what your justification depends on in that scenario. Have you done enough? Get busy. That's No. That's not our hope. That's not our plea. Our hope is in the gospel. What is that? It's that what's just, just talking about a few verses up about having made peace through the blood of his cross. And, and he did this in his body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. It has nothing to do with what you do after you're converted to make yourself acceptable. That's a life in the pit of hell. Perseverance in the gospel. Continued faith in the truth. Go to Hebrews 10. We've got to speed it up. Same idea here. Hebrews 10. This is a very perverted text here. Verse 22. Let us draw near. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's referring to self-righteousness, trying to make ourselves acceptable by establishing righteousness of our own. That's what an evil conscience is. When we are guilty under the law before we're converted, that's what an evil conscience does. It tries to produce righteousness of its own. So we need a cleansed conscience. We need to be justified. We need to be sanctified. Conscience will be taken care of. And our bodies washed with pure water, referring to uh, the word of God. Let us hold fast. What? The profession of our faith. Hold on to it. We profess to believe this. We confess Christ. We're, this is what we're professing and confessing. Hold fast to it without wavering. Notice this. For he is faithful that promised. So in other words, all these promises of God that are in Christ are yes and amen. All these things that are tied to the gospel, look Look in that direction. Don't look in yourself in connection with going back to this other system that produces a righteousness apart from Christ through whatever ceremonies or whatever. And that was the context of Judaism. But, of course, we can bring it in. Don't go back to your little stupid altar call and your sinner's prayer. Don't go back to whatever precondition that you set up and you 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 made an oath to God that you would do or just whatever superstitious religious garbage that you've been swimming in before you believe the gospel. Don't go back to it. Don't go back to that Christ that died for all and then most of those go to hell. It's a false Christ. Don't go back. It's death. That's the administration today of death. Going back to that. That's not even old covenant. That's just flat out a lie. Let us consider one another to provoke one another, as far as believers are going, to love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. In other words, it's saying, meet together. As a manner of some is, but doing what? Exhorting one another and increase it as time goes on. And so much more as you see the day approaching. Now here's where we want us to look at this and compare it to what we've already said. For if we sin willfully, and we're going to raise the question, what is the sin that it's talking about? If we sin willfully, 
after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifices for sins. Okay, so the question is, what sin is the willful sin spoken of here? Now, some people believe that are, that are mixed up and have a false gospel that a person is saved and then it's a clean slate. Now you perform. Now salvation is conditional. Once you have become saved, you have to maintain that. And, uh, I mean, Paul destroys that in uh, Galatians. He said, well, you started the spirit, now you're going to finish in the flesh? That ain't going to work. You think you got some superpower inside you now that you, you think that you're going to not be cursed and keep the law continually and do everything in it? Now, you still got a sin nature. That's not going to happen. That sin, that specific sin, it's what the whole book of Hebrews is written about is the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of departing the true gospel and going back to some standard form of sacrifice that was that's beggarly elements. That is not the not the substance, but what prefigured the substance. We know that blood of bull and goats that didn't do anything, right? They broke the law, then they had sacrifices. None of that stuff, man. Because of the weakness of the flesh, couldn't keep the law. And we know that it says the blood of bull and goats never took away sin. So he says, if you go back to that system, you've left the only and final sacrifice that actually does work and is effectual. And he, that's unbelief. That's what he's saying. And that willful sin is unbelief. Apostasy, you could call it. Leaving the faith. Because there's only one. We can relate that to what we talked about before. Like there's only one gospel, God's free and sovereign grace. Any other gospel that you go back to is a false gospel. You have left the faith. You've moved away from it. You've fallen from grace. You have not reached grace. It goes on with the same sin in mind. And, and remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to professing Christians they're not all guaranteed to be saved here. These are ones that profess to believe. And, you know, we never know how these people are going to turn out in any generation. You know, even the people that's come here and rolled through here are people that are still here. We see people leave. So in the context of, of this, he's talking to professing Christians and what the implications are. If you say you're a professing Christian and you're going back, here are the implications of what you're implying. But a certain uh, fearful uh, looking for day of judgment <coughs> and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. That, that's not actually what I was talking about there implying. It's on down. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Now, here we're getting to the implications of these professors going back in unbelief. Verse 29, and how much more sore punishment, suppose you, as compared to what happened under the Old Covenant, shall be thought worthy who have trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified 
as unholy thing and has done despite unto the spirit of grace. He's saying, look, here's, if, if you're going to do this, here's what you're implying. You claim to believe that you are bought by the blood of Christ. So you're going, if you go back, what you're implying is the blood of Christ is, is uh, unholy means common, by the way. That's what I was going to bring that up. It means common. We know the blood of Christ is not common. But if you go back, you're treating it as common, and you're stepping on it like gravel, right? Or mulch or something like that. And you say that you're in the covenant. You say you're sanctified by this work. But if you were to go back, you're looking at the blood of Christ and counting it as common. So the question for the writer to the hearer said, so is it common or not? In or out, get off the fence, right? Kind of like Paul did in Galatia. Same thing, same uh, challenge or, you know, decide where you're at here. Verse 30, and we know him that said, vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great flight of afflictions. So this is talking about when these people that he's writing to first came to faith, supposedly, <coughs> and they started talking about the gospel. He's saying some persecution took place because there was the offense of the cross and there was the disregarding of all these ceremonies and stuff. And they were afflicted. And with patience, they, in, they endured this when they were illuminated to these issues. It says partly in verse 33, while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion on me and my bonds. I think that's why uh, some people think Paul wrote this. He's always been put in prison. And took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that uh, you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. What he talked about in verse like 22, 23, 24. Don't cast that away. That's where your confidence should be, right? Because what kind of confidence do you have in this inferior system? There is none. Because you can't keep the law, and the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. No confidence there. He said, don't cast away your confidence, uh, which has great recompense of reward. Which is, it's Christ. That's your confidence. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Okay, what's the will of God? We ask this question all the time. And we can bring it in its context to believe on him whom you have sent. You see the Son, the will of God, those that see the Son, they believe. That's the will of God. If you violate that, what is it? Unbelief. That's the willful sin. Simple. That's it. That rule applies in, in a couple other different books too as something that people just like over the head. Because you know, they, they turn it to some kind of do, some kind of duty. Verse 37, for 
yet a little while, <clears throat> and he that shall come and will not tarry. <clears throat> Verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. We've heard that before a few different places. But, but, if any man draw back from that faith, from belief in Christ and his gospel, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. My soul shall have no pleasure in him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's what it's going to say in the next chapter. Chapter 11. I don't know, three or four, somewhere around here. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But, verse 39, we, now he's talking to those that haven't drawn back and that have not cast away their confidence, that do believe in the gospel. He's like, if the shoe fits, wear it. I'm talking about now those that are going to persevere, those that do believe and will not reject but we are not of them that draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. What he's talking about is perseverance in the gospel. Perseverance in the gospel. So if we believe not, yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. He abides faithful. That's kind of related to earlier in the text. It said, I'm in jail. I'm bound, but the word's not bound. The word's faithful. You know, the, the flower fadeth and all this, and it goes away just like man does. But the word of God endures forever. Truth is truth. It's never going to stop being truth. God is God. It doesn't matter what you think about him, what you say about him. He's still God. You're going away. And if you're an unbeliever, you're going away. And he, he remains God. He's faithful to himself. Here's one out of Romans 9, <coughs> Romans 9, 6. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect or failed, for they are not all Israel that are of Israel. So there were these, a lot of these people in Israel were not believing, and people were like, hey, what's going on? I think the word of God failed, because there's a promise to Israel. He said, no, those unbelievers didn't change that. Didn't make the word of God in none effect. We know in Romans 10, 16, but they uh, have not all obeyed the gospel. The Lord said, um, in Isaiah it says, Lord, he's believed our report. So the non-faith or the unbelief of other people doesn't necessarily cast doubt or shine a spotlight on God's unfaithfulness. God's in charge of all that. His people will believe. Those that aren't his people will not. I mean, is he not the potter and they're the clay? He's decided that already anyway, right? We know the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. It's a fact. We know that Christ said in the Gospels, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Can anybody take credit for continuing in his word? Better not. It's, it's, it's God that works both in you to will and do of his good pleasure. We know that uh, he that begun a good work in you will finish until the day of Christ, Philippians 1.6. All these things are monogistically done by God. It's by sovereign grace. So the question is, is God sovereign enough? Is he powerful enough? Is he wise enough to get this done? Is the shepherd effective enough to keep his flock 
hearing his voice, believing him, and following him? And has he set them apart, sanctified them by his spirit, by the word of God, to cause them to persevere in that faith? Has he done this? Yes, he has. Scriptural testimony, there's a preponderance of evidence. Yes, he has. So he abides faithful to himself. He's God no matter what people do or don't do. Right? So the elect will believe and believe the gospel to the end because he cannot deny himself. In his sovereign purpose, his covenant promise, his power of making it happen, he does make it happen. And this is about God's glory and not man's. I'm going to stop there. I went way over. I didn't get anywhere near done. <clears throat> Any questions or comments? Questions or comments?